there. You're listening to Manufacturing Tomorrow, brought to you by the Ohio Manufacturing Institute at The Ohio State University. I'm Katherine Kelly, your host. Today, we are excited to bring back Rosemary Coates, founder and executive director of the Reshoring Institute, a nonprofit organization focused on expanding U.S. manufacturing supply chains. She's also president of Blue Silk Consulting, a supply chain management consulting firm that has helped global supply chain clients for more than 25 years. She's a best-selling author of five supply chain books, including The Reshoring Guidebook and The Legal Blacksmith, How to Avoid and Defend Supply Chain Disputes. She also serves as an expert witness on legal cases involving global supply chains. Rosemary serves on the board of directors at the University of San Diego Supply Chain Management Institute and teaches global supply chain strategy at UC Berkeley. She earned an MBA from the University of San Diego and a bachelor's degree in business logistics from Arizona State University. Rosemary, welcome again to the podcast. Thank you. I'm delighted to be back. Uh, I wanted to start out with a an article that came out a couple of weeks ago in Industry Week. Um, it outlined uh, Ingersoll Rand's uh, reporting that uh, there had been there had been double digit growth as customers expand their capacity locally. Um, they included Intel's decision to invest twenty billion dollars to expand in Ohio, and I was uh, wondering if you were noticing the same trends across the U.S. Absolutely. There are so many companies that are now very interesting, interested in sourcing parts in particular into the U.S., um, bringing uh, the, the sourcing components of what they're doing back uh, locally uh, so they don't have to experience the kind of uh, long stretches in supply chain or shortages around the world due to the pandemic. Um, you know, there was just a lot of risk exposed during the pandemic, and now we're seeing that trend very definitely. We're, we're also seeing some companies bringing manufacturing back, but I think more than that, we're seeing uh, companies that are reconsidering their global supply chain strategy or their global manufacturing strategy uh, to do a perhaps a China plus one country. So a China plus maybe Vietnam, a China plus Malaysia, Indonesia, Mexico, um, and also companies that are doing a China plus two. So that would be a, a China plus maybe uh, Malaysia and the US. Uh, so this really kind of a interesting trend overall. It's, it's definitely moving towards bringing at least some manufacturing or some sourcing back to the US. Even though we only spoke a couple of years ago, so much about manufacturing has changed due to the pandemic and the global issues impacting the supply chain. Uh, what is the Reshoring Institute, Institute doing now to help manufacturers reconnect to a U.S.-based supply chain? Yeah, well, it's, it's quite interesting. I think the last time we talked, I was uh, we were in lockdown here in California, and I hadn't left the house for like three months except to go to the post office in the grocery store. Um, and of course, today it looks a little different. We're, we're mobile again. I'm traveling again, although very cautiously, I still wear a mask and so forth. But I think the, the interesting part of what happened during the pandemic was uh, that it introduced risk into supply chains that we had never seen before. So although we were seeing a trend uh, uh, towards bringing manufacturing back to the U.S., um, it was sort of a, a, a weak stream, I guess I would say. 
Um, but now the things have changed so much. And, and I think there was a, this introdu introduction of risk in global supply chains and a recognition that we're vulnerable um, as manufacturers, if we are single sourcing somewhere or sourcing in a place like China where the pandemic just ripped through all of the manufacturing sites there. And so, you know, there's a much more serious consideration at this point and more activity uh, coming our way as well as at the senior level in, uh, in executive suites, more consideration given to uh, thinking about global supply chains and how you reduce uh, or mitigate your risk and reduce vulnerability. Do you think through all this activity that manufacturers are becoming more flexible? I mean, I saw a lot of pivoting as they were you know, trying to navigate these waves coming uh, you know, before them. I like to say our manufacturers are getting smarter because it seems to me like in the past when, you know, all these years that I've been in manufacturing, um, there was sort of a, a, a rigidity, I guess, about making decisions based on costs and low cost operations. Um, today's environment's not like that. There's much more attention being paid to, as I mentioned before, risk, but also where your customers are. Where are your growth markets and aligning a manufacturing strategy to those kind of things? So, for example, um, Asia is a significant growth market. Across Asia, you're seeing a, a growth in the neighborhood of 10 to 14 percent, sort of all across the region. So, if you're selling into that market, you you probably want to keep some manufacturing there. I mean, it makes sense to manufacture products for the market in the market where you are. If you have a, a significant customer base in the U.S., then you should be considering manufacturing in America or, or in Mexico, perhaps, that's logistically easier to get to. Um, so, you know, these are the kind of decisions and variables that are now being fed into uh, into the executive suite and with eyes wide open, uh, considering what the strategy should be going forward. So yes, I, I think executives have gotten a lot smarter, a lot smarter over the last couple of years. Well, that's good. You also mentioned in 2020 that even with the, the US government stepping up the pace, the move to reshore at a large scale could take two to three years, even with swift action. Are we making any progress on this? You know, the difference is what I'm seeing now. Um, so it used to be that w we would encourage and help companies bring back manufacturing or establish new manufacturing in the U.S. Right now, what we're seeing more is an interim step. And that's where we're helping an awful lot of companies do uh, domestic sourcing projects. So, for example, they may be looking for plastic injection molder, a certain kind of chemical, um, a, a certain type of um, machine part. Um, and instead of, you know, sort of automatically going to China, looking for sources in China, um, there is an interim step being taken now to find those kind of suppliers in the U.S. So I can tell you, we are very busy helping um, clients find domestic sources or find the potential for domestic sources. And by that, I mean, um, those sources may not exist today or they previously went overseas. And so they need to be redeveloped or reestablished in the U.S. So you, we look for very often 
companies that have the potential for growing into a, a new a new sector. So we're seeing that interim step, and it's really you know more domestic sourcing, and then eventually I think that will lead to more domestic assembly and manufacturing in America. With the further cooling of the relationship, is it still a difficult process to bring parts and finished products from China back to the U.S. for manufacturing? Oh yeah, I was uh, I was at um, I was in um, Charleston last week speaking at a, a conference for uh, the automotive industry, and um, my my presentation was on leaving China. It's not as easy as you think. And, uh, you know, there's a lot of things to consider uh, in terms of leaving a foreign location, but China in particular, this is difficult to extract yourself from China. Um, very often, you know, there are things like employment contracts you have to pay out. Um, there are fines and penalties and permits you have to get. You have to wait, ask permission. Um, you know, there's all kinds of complications that we often help our, our clients with to extract themselves. Um, but I think um, overall, you know, that those kind of things may exist anywhere in the world when you may be extracting your manufacturing. And then very often the, what we do instead is to encourage our clients to at least keep some manufacturing open in those foreign locations and then bring back any new products or uh, anything that you know, you're more interested in, in moving to another location. Uh, so at the end of the conference um, that I was speaking at, one of the members of the audience came up to me and said, you scared the hell out of me. <laughs> so, I thought it was pretty funny, um, but you know, trying to explain to them how difficult it is to get out of these foreign locations. And uh, you know, there should be some awareness of that for sure. How can a man, uh, you know, based on your, your presentation and, and the consulting work you're doing, how can a manufacturer right side a, a situation like that? I, I think the most important thing is to <clears throat> think through um, <clears throat> the opportunity where you might uh, locate your manufacturing going forward. Um, and what are all the component parts of where your current manufacturing exists? So, for example, uh, if you've been manufacturing in China, you need to think about your IP, how you're protecting your IP. Excuse me. Um, if you have um, set up manufacturing operations in China, for example, um, and you have sent them your blueprints and your, your schematics and you have uh, explain to them where to get suppliers or the suppliers are delivering to their plant. You've taught them the processes. You've shown them your quality standards and the expectation and how to manufacture to those standards. And now you decide to pull out. Well, you know, the factory isn't going to, the people aren't going to go to sleep overnight and forget how they make your product. You're going to continue to make your product and probably brand it with some other brand and compete with you on the world market. So IP protection is very important and you need to think through the ramifications of that and how best to extract pieces and you know slowly wind down. Um, the other thing I always encourage is you don't announce that you're gonna leave. That's just not the right strategy um, <clears throat> because you'll find employees will retaliate against you. Uh, you know, one, one guy um, that was making medical 
plastic parts. His name is Chip Starnes. And he was manufacturing plastic parts in China and found a cheaper location in India and decided to move, move his operations from China to India. And the employees captured him and held him prisoner for two weeks in his office. Um, now, they fed him and everything. It wasn't like they abused him, but they wouldn't let him go because he had not paid out their employment contracts. And so until he agreed to pay out all those contracts, they wouldn't they wouldn't release him. And in, in China, you know, the the, the uh, police aren't going to help you They're The police are there to enforce the laws of China, not to help in, in, in civil situations like this. So the poor guy was stuck. But on the other hand, he should have been aware of the employment contract requirements. So, um, you know, there, there are complications like that that are, um, you know, going to be eye-opening for a lot of companies. Uh, so, you know, that's just one example. But, you know, there are so many other things. A lot of companies have sent tools and uh, machinery and so forth to China. And by God, they think they own that stuff because they said they own it. But it's a little bit different in China. If if you don't have an NNN agreement, um, it's difficult to protect your IP. If you have machinery that the Chinese government thinks is important for their own production, they're going to hold on to it and not let you export it. So, you know, there's all these different facets of thinking through the decision that are super important. And, you know, this is the kind of work that we do also. We help our clients go through that kind of review and analysis so they don't get either surprised or uh, or stuck in a situation you know the other flip side of the coin is that if asian markets are your growth are you know one of your larger growth opportunities you don't want to leave on a bad you know bad footing um if you were to i mean sure you could lock the door and turn off the lights and turn off turn on the alarms and get on a plane and come home right without doing anything um, but you may never be allowed back into china and if that's your growth market you don't want to shoot yourself in the foot like that you have to do things properly thoughtfully and plan in advance well, i read some of those eye-opening experiences and you would think with with the the um you know the the number of them that are out there that that uh, there there would be uh, you know much more care taken in that regard. So uh, it's it's interesting. It's still happening. So um, so uh, and, and it goes on and on and on. I mean, just I think you know the biggest thing is to be aware and plan. Uh, just as I just as I am now recommending to all of our clients um, that they have a business continuity plan in place. Uh, this is huge gap. Uh, we've done a number of, of um, surveys for um, business associations for various industries, as well as general surveys. And what we found um, is that all well over 50% of the companies we surveyed uh, do, do not or did not have an effective business continuity plan in place during the pandemic. So, you know, they didn't, they started started from square one they didn't know what to do um they didn't have you know financial arrangements in place they didn't know how to communicate with employees there were um you know all kinds of shortages with respect to parts they didn't know how to source alternate parts they you know they were really flying blind and uh, you know by the seat of the pants trying to get things done 
a business continuity plan that is a general framework. So it's, you know, who thought we'd have a pandemic, right? So it's really hard to plan for things like that, black swan events. But putting at least the basic framework in place where you know uh, there's going to be a team established, there's a team leader, you know, what what kind of um, different aspects you need to consider, like finance, you need to have petty cash available to pay a truck driver, you know, do you um, have alternate sources already set up, those kind of things. Business continuity planning is really, really important. Absolutely. And uh, to, to shift gears a little bit, um, you know, is there a role, and, and you are um, connected to um, at least one academic institution, so is there a role uh, academic institutions can play to support the manufacturing supply chain and spur innovation through uh, the research that is conducted in, and of course, the workforce? So we have a, an expanding role. Uh, right now, we're connected with 14 universities across the nation. Um, I'm not Ohio State yet, but uh, that's coming. They're on our Ohio State. The Ohio State is on our list. Um, so what we do is take graduate student interns, <clears throat> excuse me, either in supply chain management or um, engineering students, uh, and we bring them on as paid interns. So they work for us for a semester, and during that period of time, they help us with our consulting work. Sometimes they act as junior consultants. Uh, they do basic research, fundamental research. They write case studies and white papers, depending on what they're interested in. So for example, we had a, an intern from the University of Kentucky um, la last year, and he was um, an MBA student focused on environmental science and, um, and uh, all kinds of related um, supply chain issues. And so he did some, some master research for us on how um, the global supply chain and, and your carbon footprint is related to supply chain management. So, you know, if, if a student is interested in one particular area, we let them fly, you know, we'll guide them with what we think the uh, research should en encompass, and then we let them work on their own project. So that it's really a win-win for everybody. The student uh, gets lots of exposure. We always um, produce a, a, a white paper or a case study. We have it nicely laid out and so forth with the student's picture and bio on the back. And um, we win because, you know, we're expanding our knowledge and our research base. Um, the universities win because they're always looking to have interns uh, be placed in certain organizations. These are also virtual um, research positions, so they can be anywhere in the nation. We, we work very closely with them, so we're on, on Zoom calls with them a couple of times a week and guiding them and so forth. So, you know, it's kind of a a win for everybody and pretty exciting because we're, we're creating a huge body of knowledge. Uh, so yeah, we, we have a very hearty, um, a hearty internship program. And mostly it's because we know that these people, these master's students are going to be running our industries in the future. And they may start out in an entry level position, but sooner or later, they're going to be in a management position. And so we want to teach them and guide them about manufacturing and the things to consider. Oh, that's true. If I recall correctly, I think we talked about one of the graduate students uh, a few years ago who uh, did a white paper for, um, it was Big Ass Fans, right? 
Yes. Yes, that was another a different um, uh, intern from the University of Kentucky, and the Big S fans is in Lexington. And so I was there with her, and we did a, uh, a tour of the plant, and then she dug in, did quite a bit of research. Yeah, Big S fans was a, a good one, a good, big one. Yes, I read that one. That She, she did a really great job. Um, yeah. Uh, as since we're talking about workforce, you know, uh, what do you see as the importance of reshoring jobs to the U.S.? Is talent retention and recruiting becoming as important as recruiting companies? Absolutely, if not more important. So, you know, when we moved so much of manufacturing offshore in the early 2000s, once um, China ascended to the World Trade Organization and um, the doors were open for a free trade between our countries, so much of the manufacturing moved offshore and that included all the support activities like mold making um, machine tool operating and and so forth so all of that was growing those skills were growing in china and um, declining in the u.s so now when we're reversing that trend uh, and now for example we want to have um, you know machine tool makers tool and die makers Man, they are scarce and really difficult to find them, as well as electricians and plumbers and all the services that surround a manufacturing environment. Because we just didn't pay attention to developing those skills while manufacturing was shifting offshore. So now we have to rebuild all those skills. And I would say there are massive shortages in that area. The other area is truck drivers. There's just a tremendous shortage in truck driving, and that's driven up the rates as well as delayed shipments and so forth. So we, we have a need there to, to expand uh, the employment in that area. And have you found any um, you know, ingredients in special sauce, so to speak, that could entice more young people, especially those from underrepresented groups, to pursue manufacturing careers? Yeah, so we, we mostly deal with the graduate students, um, and we're, we're mostly talking about, um, about management level jobs. So we'd love to do everything, <laughs> but we can't. We have limited resources, so we've chosen to, to focus more on the management aspects of that. Definitely seeing an increase in diversity, no question about that, and, um, and an increase in people interested in supply chain management. So, you know, I was telling someone the other day, um, you know, I toiled away at supply chain um, projects and positions over 40 years. And, I, you know, I used to, somebody would ask me what I do for a living. I'd start to explain and their eyes would sort of glaze over, you know, they're like, oh, let's move to the food table. You know, right. just not that interested in supply chain. Right? I could put people to sleep pretty fast. Uh, but today, it's you know completely changed, right? So today, uh, supply chain management is headline news in the Wall Street Journal. Um, it is an important aspect of every business in terms of the the cost and um, the capabilities and the the way you service your your customers. So you know the attitudes have changed, the direction has changed, the scope has changed. And that means it's attracting a lot more attention and a lot of interested uh, people, men, women, minorities, uh, all, all sorts of people are attracted. The other thing is it pays really well. So I think supply chain management is in the top four or five professions um, for graduates. And uh, that certainly is going to make a difference to people choosing. 
Well, it definitely sounds like you have your hands full. Uh, that said, is there um, anything up next for the Reshoring Institute you'd like to share? Yeah, I think we're um, we're still in a path. We're doing a lot of research. We're, right now, we're about to publish a study on um, comparative labor rates around the world. So we took, I think, 10 categories of jobs from <clears throat> assembly worker all the way up through senior management uh, and uh, compared the labor rates in about 10 different countries. So it's pretty interesting to see uh, that kind of cost structure develop. So we're... we're I'm going to publish that here in the next few weeks. Um, we are, you know, continuing to support through lots of public speaking. I'm on the road a lot, um, talking to uh, all kinds of uh, industry organizations and educational groups and economic development people, and sort of ringing the bell for reshoring or considering reshoring and in planting new seedlings in terms of the ideas um, and the approach to either returning sourcing to the US uh, or expanding manufacturing here. Um, as you know, the, the pandemic really uh, drained the swamp in terms of where we're vulnerable. And uh, there's so many industries uh, and even the Biden administration in the first hundred days prepared a supply chain report and it included the top four places where we are vul very vulnerable. One is pharmaceuticals. I mean, you know, most of our building blocks for um, antibiotics and so forth are made either in China or India. Um, they're not made here. So if we can't get those building blocks, we cannot produce antibiotics. That's a scary thought. Semiconductors, <clears throat> of course, we know all about the semiconductor shortages and the new plant that's being built in Ohio by Intel, which is wonderful. But all that stuff will take four or five years to come online. It's not going to happen overnight. In the meantime, we're experiencing shortages. The other thing is, uh, with the war in, in Ukraine, uh, most of the neon gas in the world comes from Ukraine. And without neon, you can't produce semiconductors. So. <laughs> And it gets complicated, you know, and these very entangled worldwide uh, sources. Uh, so that's a problem for semiconductors. Then the other one is rare earths um, mining. So rare earth elements are in all uh, electronics and, you know, just all kinds of stuff that we're, we're making. And uh, China controls 85% of that market. So we need to redevelop rare earth mining and uh, processing in the U.S. We do have deposits of rare earths here. It's just that mining them is kind of a dirty job and is polluting. So we need to develop the technology so that we have cleaner mining as a result. And then the fourth category was um, EV batteries. Uh, in order to, to address the environmental issues and to go forward with EV trends in automotive, uh, we need to be much more, much more, have much more development of EV batteries in America. Well, I'm going to try not to panic. I'm, I'm glad you're there to sort it out, Rosemary. Thank you so much for spending time with us. And, you know, I look forward to the third visit. We'll, we'll have to set that up. Great. I would love to come back. Thank you very much, Catherine. I appreciate it.